Hey guys, before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know about a couple things that I think that you'll love. If you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, you will most likely enjoy the Sunday Six. The Sunday Six is a Sunday newsletter that I send out every week, and it includes six interesting things that you can read in under six minutes. You can subscribe by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to jaredgrabiel.com. Um, of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe, but I always recommend checking it out. And then two other resources, if you're really into business, leadership, self-help, self-growth, uh, check out the Self-Help Book, which is a book that I published January 17th of this year, and the Self-Help Journal, which is a great practical guide to self-awareness, which is arguably one of the greatest tools of leadership in today's world. Let's dive into today's show. This is the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Grabeel. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Jared Grabeel. And on today's episode, I've got Travis Chambers. Travis is a fellow Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient, and he's also the founder of Chamber Media, which is a growth and video agency. Travis has led distribution and content strategy for YouTube's number one ad of the decade, which was Kobe versus Messi. Uh, and it had over 140 million views, and he's worked with brands like Kraft, Vitamin Water, Amazon, along with many others. Travis has also been a keynote speaker at Google Growth Summit, VidCon, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's been featured in Inc., Entrepreneur, Adweek, Huffington Post, along with many others. So it's safe to say we're going to learn a ton today about Travis. Man, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. I got to say, that's a heck of an intro. Uh, not only is it a mouthful, it is certainly impressive. So um, I'm excited to dive in, man. Travis, if you were to tell the story of how you got to where you are today in two to three minutes, what would that sound like? Yeah, I... Uh... I always did the home movie thing as a kid. I like strapped a VHS helmet on my motorcycle helmet and like broke that, got grounded all summer. That's where it all started. Told my parents I wanted to make commercials for movies when I was a kid. And so pretty soon my wife and I made a video, went viral. Um, she did this dumb blonde impression <clears throat> and <laughs> so stupid, but we ended up on Good Morning America and this like national press tour for it. And the agency that I had dreamed of working at since I was in high school, Crispin Porter and Bogusky, they reached out to license the video for Kraft Mac and Cheese. Well, so I said, are. hey, I'll let you license it for free for a job interview. They hired me and they, they flew us down to LA and housed us there. <clears throat> and then a year later, Turkish Airlines walked in and said, we want to make the most viral out of all time. And I had been a student kind of a viral video really passionate about it. And we did it. We pulled off this crazy campaign and we got 150 million views and 3 million shares. To my knowledge, it still is the most viral ad of, of all time, if not one of the top three, maybe. It's kind of how you look at it. But <clears throat> YouTube, Google came out and, and actually did a survey and said it was like the most viral ad of all time. And so... That's awesome. Then, then I, um, I went over to 20th Century Fox and was making commercials for movies. Basically in a way, kind of, for social media. <clears throat> it didn't work out. I sucked at it. I was like, I couldn't navigate that Hollywood speed. Um, so I got cut after three months and 
uh, <clears throat> my dad got Parkinson's and cancer and divorced in like a two year period. And I <clears throat> had like a midlife crisis at like 25 and started chamber media. And then I've just been sticking with that ever since. And now we're up to like 127 employees and we're doing about 15 million a year in revenue. Um, and it just keeps growing and it's cool because we've done it on a four day work week. And, um, most people aren't working more than 40 hours and we're trying to like do it right. You know? So, yeah, I'm excited to get into a lot of those details. I read a good bit about the four day work week you guys are doing, obviously some of the revenue you're bringing in. Um, you said you started chamber media at 25. What year was that? Uh, 2014. I think it was. Okay. So you're about seven years into the game, 126 employees, I think you said, um, which there's a ton of pros and cons to that, which we'll get into. Um, when did you start the four-day work week? Was that something that when you started the company, that was a non-negotiable or is it something that you transitioned to over time? So when we started the company, we had a, a, a thing where we wanted to try and compensate people with time. Um, because... <clears throat> When I got let go from 20th Century Fox, it was pretty hard on me. And <clears throat> I couldn't really figure out where I wanted to go next. And everywhere I was looking, I, I realized it was going to be a 50, 60 hour a week kind of culture. Um, to, to make it big in advertising, that's what you have to do. It's really competitive. A lot of people were in rock bands in high school and they, they kind of want to be rock stars, but they're not. They're not rock stars. And advertising is just where they all gravitate. <clears throat> You know, a lot of people who are willing to kind of delay a lot of life things in order to, you know, get up there. And a lot of industries are like that. And so I thought, well, maybe I can create a place that is innovative enough and is is forward thinking enough where we can compete and we can do it without having to do that. Maybe there's a, a different way. And I did see some problems with a lot of the the creative agencies business models, um, you know, agencies like 72 and Sunny, um, Wyden and Kennedy. <clears throat> and granted, those agencies are putting out like the best work on earth. They're putting out stuff with Nike and, and you know, great brands that, you know, way, way above my level, of course, even now. But, but I thought there's got to be some things that we can do and do it differently and, and be niche and stay small and be a lifestyle agency. So for five or six years, we were at four or five full-time employees. And then everything was just contractors. And sometimes we'd have 30 contractors working. Sometimes we'd have 10 and it would vary. Um, So it was great. We didn't have super high payroll costs. We didn't have a lot of high fixed costs. But then that, I I don't know exactly um, how or why, but it just I, I have some ideas of why, but it just started to grow. I think that maybe our forward thinking and innovative stuff, maybe the industry kind of demand kind of caught up to a lot of those ideas. <clears throat> and it just exploded. It went to like 15 um, two years ago. And then last year it went from 15 to this 126 and continues to grow. And uh I can't help but think that a lot of that was having certain values and maybe those values kind of slowed us down in the beginning where a lot of people maybe are going for, they're just going big. They want to go big and we decidedly didn't. And those restrictions in that box 
may have created what we are. We only took six-figure stuff at the time. So when you think about Tesla, they released the Roadster first, this this $100,000 supercar, basically. And then they used that to fund the uh, Model S. And that was a little cheaper. And then they used the Model S to fund the Model 3. And that Model 3 is like a mass market, affordable car. It's kind of what we did. And those restrictions created this groundswell and brand and I think integrity too, like a rep- reputation as well. And so it's, it's just interesting how maybe some value limitations can slow you down in the short term, but really help you grow in the long term. Yeah. And um, Good to Great by Jim Collins, which if you haven't read before, I highly recommend reading it. I would say it's probably top five business books in existence. Um, Jim Collins talks about two things very specifically. One, values, uh, not just having them on the wall, but living them out within the organization. And he talks about the flywheel. And if you're not familiar with the flywheel, it, it basically is this, you know, your Gary V talks a lot about jab, 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 right hook, right? It's kind of the same thing. You're, you're moving the flywheel. And at first it's this massive flywheel. It's going to move really slowly, but eventually you continue to move the flywheel and it, it gains traction and it, and it almost moves on its own at a rapid pace. And so it's kind of how I picture the, maybe the last seven years and then culminating into this last two year peak for you guys, which is really exciting stuff. Yeah. That's such a fascinating way to, to say it. That's so true. It really is that way. And I didn't believe that at first, Um, you know, everything I read said nine and 10 businesses fail. And then the ones that do succeed, it takes two or three years for them to make any money. And I I really rejected that notion. I read the four-day work week and I thought, okay, this is not realistic. But then I read a book called The $100 Startup. And the whole book is just talking about people that started a company with $100. And a lot of them just happened to be media buying companies. And then I read um, True Media Confessions, a true media manipulator, True Confessions of a Media Manipulator, something like that from Ryan Holiday. And he did all these really cool PR stunts and stuff. And that was really in line with those interested in. And it was those two books, kind of like your flywheel example that like sparked this hope. But I did have this um, unrealistic notion that I was going to be mega successful right out of the gate. And it's funny because it's really how you measure it. I had other friends that started media companies that grew really fast. I had friends that started tech companies that got acquired within a couple of years. Um, a lot of people who raised money, but most of the people I knew who raised money and had really, really big ideas got crushed and lost everything and, and kind of ruined their lives doing it. And I thought, man, I don't really, I don't really need that. I don't need to be huge. I don't need to have a huge company. And so that first year we did about $650,000 in sales. And I think after my split with my partners, I took home 70 grand which was, which was about 50 grand less than I was making at 20th Century Fox, but still enough to live on. Yeah. Paycheck to paycheck. So pretty, pretty good, you know, not bad. Um, the stress was hard. And then the second year we did 1.2 million and I think I took home about 130 grand. And so by that second year, I was, I was then slightly over what I was making at Fox. Um, and then it just continued to double every year, pretty much. 
but it was very stressful. And even though I maybe only worked 40 or 50 hours, I worried 200 hours a week or whatever. And the peaks and valleys were really extreme. We'd have a project and we just have tons of cash. And then we go to Europe on a vacation, family vacation with our, our young kids on top of the world. And then, um, and then we'd have a slow time or yeah. we'd have a clients not pay. And we had to move in with my, my mom's, my, my, our mother-in-law for a few months and rent out our place on Airbnb. So anyways, like what you're saying about the flywheel, it's true. And, um, I think it's a matter of trying to get the flywheel going without destroying yourself in the process. And I think a lot of people do destroy themselves on, on not understanding that concept and trying to get the flywheel to move too quickly. Right. That's where the values come into play, right? If, if, maybe balance or family or things like health, if those are values, then the flywheel moves in a certain, at a certain speed for a certain period of time. Yeah. Um, Cause without values, you, you may end up like hooked on cocaine um, and start like doing really crazy things to try and be successful. Like you could lose, you could lose perspective of everything. And it sounds crazy, but I've seen, I've seen it happen. I've yeah. seen it. I've seen that people get consumed by it and they, they put hundred percent of their identity as a human being into the success of this thing. I've noticed a lot of people, especially that fall into that are people who had a parent or two parents that were, didn't give them approval or were very skeptical, very emotionally distant or critical of them. I've noticed a lot of people will they'll crack because they yeah. just can never fill that void kind of thing. And, I was one of those people. Um, I had, my mom was that way. And fortunately the values and family kind of like helped me avoid that, that turn that I think a lot of people that I saw took that, that route. Yeah. And you're in media and I can see how that can be like a slippery slope, right? Like a race to the top. Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, Sort of rapid fire questions here. One what is your favorite ad, maybe aside from any work that you guys have done? What's the first thing that comes to mind? <clears throat> My favorite ad is one of the worst ads that we ever made. It was for Coupon Goods. They're one of the top pillows on Amazon. And... <clears throat> we made this mistake where we thought if we went really huge with the production, it would, it would just work, but the messaging was really off. But I, I love that ad because it was a time where we were small and we were just, just letting it all loose and just putting it all out there. And we hadn't really had that many failures yet, you know, to like have to look our wounds and kind of like pull back. And so we just threw everything at that ad and it's so stupid and so ridiculous. It's Laura Clary and her husband, Laura Clary is a big Facebook influencer. And, um, they are, they're waking up from a bad night's sleep because they have crappy pillows. And then this like random fairy shows up. He's like five foot three, 280 pound guy shows up in a diaper. And then they like, he takes them to this dreamland and they're flying. And we like recreated this, you know, this uh, portly fairy guy 
we like CGI recreated him. So he's like flying everywhere in the fields. And then they're all of a sudden they're on their, their talking dog. That's a pug with one eye. That's yeah. they have a one eyed pug in real life. And we made this huge like pug, real pug giant that they're riding like, uh, like the never ending story. Right. We're doing it. Yeah. And, and then, and then it goes into the, like this stranger things knockoff where something's trying to like push through the wall. It's just so stupid and crazy and ridiculous. And it's my favorite ad because it, it pushed the boundaries more than anything else we ever got to do. Okay. You know? What and, about an ad that you didn't make, like that somebody else has made? What's an ad that you like aspire to, you know, that you think about when you're like, we need to continue to create great ads like this? Yeah. I really love the Old Spice ads where okay. they, they're they carrying Terry Crews or the original guy. They're like carrying him through sets and stuff like that. I really, those really inspired me a lot. They're, also, the um, the other favorite one is the Volvo semi-truck split with Chuck Norris where he's standing on two Volvo semi-trucks and then they diverge and he does the splits. Yeah, that's I, dude, I, I miss those days and, and stuff doesn't really go viral anymore. And um, that used to be kind of like my passion. and My obsession was just viral videos. You, you have those, do you know, you have those friends that used to just be obsessed with viral videos. Yeah. Oh, man, did you see? yeah and, and it's sad that that era is kind of like gone now. You know, now it's yeah. all direct response and paid, but we had some good times while it lasted. If you could do an ad for one company, who would the company be like? What's, you know, what's one company you aspire to, to do work with one day? Liquid Death. Have you heard of Liquid Death? Mountain yeah. Water. So I love what they're doing. And then to be honest, they're so good that they really don't need us. Um, they're at like a higher level than we are. And, and most of their stuff's internal. So we made a spec ad. We had a really, August is always really slow for us. And so we had a couple of writers make, we made a spec ad. And I was Satan playing the electric guitar on top of this like mountain. And everyone was uh, all like demonic and stuff. And unfortunately, what happened is these two people took this thing to like a Emily Rose exorcism cult thing instead of this like, cool heavy metal thing and it just ended up getting really weird okay like, i think they like killed they killed like a fake animal and like blood was everywhere and it just got super weird even me on set i was pretty like weirded out by it it, it turned into this halloween thing and i um i posted the preview a little preview to the ad and the ceo reached out and he's like hey please please don't share that ad anymore <laughs> He's like, and by the way, can I see the full length thing? I sent him the full length thing and he's like, hey, I really like it, but could you just make sure to not post that anywhere? Which means he hated it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> another like, good we really, learning lesson. We really just don't want people to think we made that ad. He's like, we, you know, we we don't want people thinking that we're like the occult and stuff. And That's yeah, funny. so that was the one that I wish we could have got. But I think that that relationship is probably um that one's probably over. <laughs> well, maybe it'll rebirth at some point. Let's get I'll into have to send him. I'll send him this episode. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll tag him when it gets posted on, on, on Instagram as well. Uh, maybe at least liquid death. All right. Let's get into ads a little bit because like I mentioned to you off uh, the recording, I get reached out to by 
media agencies almost every day to host their CEO on my podcast. And I don't say that to say that my podcast is this, you know, like super popular podcast or anything. I just say that there's a ton of media agencies out there. Um, but yours in particular looked, well, one, you've, you've got a resume that is tried and true, right? Forbes under 30, um, arguably the most viral video. You've worked with some really reputable companies. Um, but two, I, you know, I checked out your Instagram and I checked out the company and it was, you guys are putting out some great content, um, and you're producing some really high level results, right? So let's talk about ads, uh, for the sake of learning a little bit more about the business of generating successful ads. How are companies usually, how are companies using social media ads to grow and what does the future for social media ads look like? Yeah, the thing that people are not doing is they're just not investing enough in good creative and they're trying to depend too much on the Facebook platform and everyone's getting a wake up call right now. There's been an iOS privacy update. So Apple is rolling out this thing where you can opt out of tracking. Right. And so far about 70% of people have had that update and 96% of those have opted out of being tracked. So the... We had this window of really deep targeting and very cheap ad inventory, which was, which is very different from TV, which was pretty overpriced. And you had to spend a lot of money in order to even participate in the game. And then you really had to re- rely on brand awareness and like Nielsen tracking data where they literally call people and ask them if they saw your commercial. And then they put like a net promoter score and stuff together which is not really very indicative of like sales and stuff. So we had this really great window. Um, but anyways, we always really held tightly to creative and it's because I was at a creative agency. And so a lot of the people that are starting ad buying or, or media agencies, they're usually really young. They oftentimes have never worked anywhere. So they just don't have the valuable insight that they need. Um, and then because of that, they're just completely reliant on Facebook's targeting, which you can only do so much. And at some point, it really is going to come down to the creative. Right. And so what we did is we took the $80 million in spend that we've managed and um, over 10,000 ads that we'd created, and we put them all into a database. And then we analyzed, we, we basically made a taxonomy like you would have in the animal kingdom. Like you have, um, you know, the wolf is in, in the canine family or whatever. In the canine family, there's multiple different. And then under the wolf, there's subspecies of wolf. That's what we did, but with ad types. And we, we created a taxonomy of ad types. And we found out there were seven categories that generally get the most performance. Um, and then we took it one step farther and we analyzed the top 1% of all, um, the top Shopify stores ads. And then we pulled that data and correlated it all. And we put it into a database and we hired machine learning engineers to mine and, and catalog that data. And we've pulled out all these really wild insights, um, and so we took this kind of quantitative approach to creative because what really bothered me about creative agencies is that they would mostly just make things that were cool that would win awards and that maybe the client would think was cool, but there just wasn't a lot of accountability to performance. And so I wanted to really understand what kind of creative works and why. 
and then work within those parameters. And so now we've got a really great um, process in place with what we call the seven foundational ads, which um, I don't know if I'll remember them all off the top of my head, but it's a spokesperson video, a product demonstration, a closer ad, social proof, um, a case study, and lifestyle. And there's one more. I can't remember what it is, but um, so for anyone that's making ads, I think it's really important to just stop throwing things at the wall that you think will work, which can cost you a lot of money. Rather, you got to really look at what your competitors are doing and start thinking with an ad type mindset. Oh, the other category is unboxing. So look at the top competitors on Facebook ads library or whatever, or if you're working with us, we can pull it. But you got to just identify what the ad types are that are working and they're different by industry. Right. You know, lifestyle ads work really well in apparel, but they don't work very well in skincare because who cares about a lifestyle ad about skincare? You know, they want to know about the ingredients and the empirical evidence, you know, whereas with apparel, it's all about the lifestyle. It's all about how you're going to look and feel. And so I think there's a lot of really cool insights that we've uncovered that maybe haven't been uncovered before we're wondering if maybe this is the largest advertising study that's ever been done in this way. Right. And now that people are, have the choice to opt out of being targeted, would you say that the, uh, the a, sort of a new era of virality might be coming back because now you have to gain organic traction. You can't just target people with money. Yeah. You know, the algorithms shut it down pretty hard and it still happens but it's very, very, very rare. And Facebook and YouTube have, I think, created algorithms where if something's starting to take off and get traction, let's say a certain video ad is getting traction in the news, maybe, or a Reddit thread, it's getting a lot of third-party traffic to it. The algorithms have gotten very good at um, categorizing that video as an ad and shutting it down its viral reach because they want to they wanna make sure that brands have to pay. Yeah, you got to pay to play. Yeah, they don't want to lose. They don't want. They don't want anyone stealing. You know, stealing their space, per right. se. So Facebook ads are clearly getting harder. How can marketers acquire customers elsewhere? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, it's important to be on multiple platforms. So you know, Chamber, we run ads for ourselves. We've now scaled YouTube, which was very difficult to do, but now we've done it. So we have now diversified our lead flow. But for e-commerce or direct-to-consumer companies, to, to really become $20, $30 million plus companies, they have to have at least three or four things working. And that's Facebook ads, Google, YouTube, Pinterest, TikTok, Snapchat, um, whatever that is, right? For social ads is one component. And then they usually need to have a two or three other components, whether that's uh, search ranking, a top listing on Amazon, um, affiliate, really good affiliates, um, online retailers, maybe they're on you know homedepot.com or walmart.com and they're able to get a organic flow there or wayfair.com is a big one for, for home, certain companies in home goods. Um, 
physical retail can be really important. Um, some people have grown companies with just communities like Facebook groups and social followings, organic social followings like Rags to Rages. She's a friend of mine. She she grew an apparel empire just off of pretty much Facebook groups. So there's seven or eight kind of different levers you can pull. Um, email is big. I know some companies that do a million a month just from their email list without acquiring any other new customers of any kind. And so it really just takes a few of those levers. I mean, we've seen it too, like Transparent Labs from three and a half years ago, one of our OG clients, they were all pretty dependent on affiliate marketing. He hired us to try and diversify. And within a couple of months, we were, we were driving a million a month in sales on about 150 grand of ad spend. And Google update came and he lost about 70% of his organic affiliate traffic. So that would have been a really catastrophic moment, but because he had to diversify acquisition channels, he was able to continue growing um, and he ended up getting acquired for uh, eight figures after three years. So it's really important to, to just, these e-commerce companies have to find one thing. You just have to find one thing that scales and then it gets really easy to start adding on other layers to yeah. it. Now from, uh, reading a little bit about you and your company. I, I've, I understand that you've taken your family on a bunch of trips to like 30 or more countries while now running over, you know, managing over a hundred employees. How do you pull that off? So I did a lot of traveling before we grew before COVID. And sometimes I wonder if part of the reason we grew so much is because I is because of COVID, <laughs> like I, I didn't really have much else to do or focus on. It is also when we start running ads for ourselves. So I think that's like 90% of it. But um, I tried to just set up the company in a way where it wasn't completely dependent on me, which was hard because I had to use my personal brand to get traction. I tried for a few years to get Chamber Media to be well-known and it just never worked. And so then I started focusing on getting myself well known, and that really, that that's what took us from two million a year to three million a year um, a few years ago. That grows from like five to fifteen, and that's kind of where this whole growth thing really started. But uh, but yeah, man, it was like just a decision. It was just a decision, and we went on a month long trip to Asia, and I had limited access. I probably only had access to my phone maybe two or three hours a day. And I was pretty terrified to do that. But what happened is when I got back, nothing bad had happened and everyone had taken more responsibility on themselves. It was the same thing that happened when I gave my partner equity four years ago. All of a sudden he could focus on operations, which I'm horrible at, and I could focus on sales, which I'm better at. And basically in handing off and doing what kind of felt a little bit lazy, maybe or entitled, that limitation created growth. And so I've, I've continued to do that over and over again, um, you know, with hiring a sales team and handing off the baton and saying, this is on you. This is on you now. Figure this out. Um, you know, for a while, I was flying around conferences and I just had to get cl- clients by speaking at conferences and getting press features and, and doing like guests, being a guest on podcasts and, and just like, 
hunting people down and I don't have to do any of that anymore. Now, anything like that is more of like a, it's like a pleasurable thing. It's like a fun thing to do and, and automating. So, you know, I just think it's important for founders or even like managers or executives at companies. It is really important, I think, for them to sometimes take time away on purpose right? to, to give more power to, to the people that they work with. Yeah. And then they can adapt to being more responsible. Um, Cause if you're always around then they know they always have a fallback. Yeah. I tell our executives this too, because it feels very entitled to make someone else. People that are really high performers that aren't just skating by and aren't just like trying to like fly under the radar as corporate lifers, people that are really true high performers that really take things internally and self-actualize. They have a really hard time letting other people do their job. But we've this year, I mean, we've got a really strong layer of executive leadership. It's the only reason that we were able to grow this year is because the year prior, we had grown this leadership layer and they have all had to go through the same process I did. I have even sent some of them or asked them to take a week off on purpose so that they can't be accessed. Right. Um, and so it's been a, it's, it's just an interesting learning process. I never knew, you know, you know, people say it, you know, like people talk about delegation and stuff like that. I never really understood what that meant. Um, yeah. Cause it feels lazy when you do it. Right. It just makes you feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't have time to do the dirty work, but no, it's not, that's not true. Yeah. It's responsible. I want to talk about your, your executive team a little bit. Like what's the org chart? Like, I know that you're the founder and you mentioned giving some equity away to your partner. So were you sole proprietor in the beginning or for the first couple of years, like you and the whole company, and then you've recently handed off a chunk of it to your partner? I started out with a couple of partners. They were still at their jobs. We had done six or 700 grand in revenue. And for some reason, they still didn't, weren't willing to come and join full-time. And to me, that meant that they didn't believe in it. It was just right. a side project for them. So we split. We split. They kept a couple clients and I formed a new entity. Um, and I was, I was just kind of me for a while. And my current partner was employee number one. He was an intern. Um, and when I split with those partners, I got the intern that became, you know what I mean? The yeah. guy that runs the company. How funny is that? Um, and so it was, it was just me and him. And then there were a couple other employees um, after two or three years. And then that's when I gave him um, equities when we were about five employees. Um, and that's when things really started to, to grow. And so now with our exec team, we have my founder doesn't actually really have a specific title. He's just founder, just like me. He's basically at this point, we're both full-time innovator idea people. Um, and underneath us, there's a president, there's a head of advertising. She's over all of the, the ad buying stuff. There's a, um, like a, a key accounts client success, you know, had, he's head of like the VIP accounts. There's a guy that's head of our um, micro video offering, which is our low, lowest, lower cost offering. Um, <clears throat> and then um, I think that's it. Yeah. 
So there's four, four, four execs. Gotcha. Yeah. So would you say that it's better to have a business partner or to go solo in starting a company? Yeah. I used to think that having partners was horrible. I, I was partners with, um, Ruan Gardner, the Olympic gold medalist that, um, beat the, beat the Russian in the, the early two thousands. He was like the, the big wonder story, the miracle story in, in rest, wrestling. And that wasn't great. We started an MMA fight promotion together and it did really well. And, and I, you know, I was like, Oh man, I'm doing all the work. And like, you're just in, you're just like a, you want a gold medal, but like that gold medal doesn't help run the business. Um, and then I had other businesses I started where I had partners and, um, partners just never worked out for me. And I got pretty jaded and I, I got to the point where I thought, you know, at some point there has to be one person in charge. And I think that partnerships work really well, but I don't, and I'm, I don't know for sure, but I don't think that equal partnerships work well. I think that at at certain point there has to be somebody who has the ultimate say, and I'm, it's got to be the reason that rock bands, you know, struggle and a lot of these musical groups struggle, is 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 if you have two people or three people that are on the same level of seniority, at some point someone's going to have to compromise with someone else's idea. Yeah. Not and everybody gets so, lucky like Google. Yeah. Apple. And I would say even in those situations, there was probably the guy that was kind of the guy and the other guy was conceding a lot. Sure. Like Apple. You've got like Steve Jobs and Wozniak. You've got Bill Gates and whoever the other guy is that we've never heard of. Like, and there's, there's books about this too. And usually the, the founder usually has to be a visionary and the number two usually has to be logistics. Um, the most successful iconic businesses usually are, are that. I mean, yeah. it was kind of like that with Zuckerberg and that's how it is with me and my partner. He just happens to be a guy who does not really want to be a public face. He doesn't enjoy, he doesn't enjoy the limelight. He does not enjoy any of that stuff. He's a very private guy and he, he really just enjoys creative and he enjoys the process and he really enjoys me, I don't get a huge thrill out of the creative and the process and stuff like that. I get a thrill out of what's the next big idea and the future and how can we go chase it? And it's funny, he's even said before, he's like, he's like, you think of the big ideas and I think of the little ideas and it takes both. Yeah. And my big ideas have a really high fail rate and his little ideas have a very, very high success rate. And it's just kind of interesting how that dynamic fits together. Yeah, that's really interesting. So a couple more rapid fire questions before we close out today. Um, In your opinion, what do you think makes a good leader? If you were to identify two or three character traits, um, what would they be? Um, I think the first thing is is like um, the ability to create loyalty with people through, through empathy and through kind of putting other people first. As I look at the leaders that have really succeeded in our company, that is the quality I've seen. We've had a lot of people in our company that were very talented and very smart. Um, but they, 
that we've had some of them really fail because they um, they just they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't be cheerleaders for the team. They couldn't put the team first. It's all about them. And you know, one one person I think of in particular in our team is is Ellie. She's our head of advertising, and um, she just has this incredible loyalty with her team, and it's because she's so loyal to them. It's just a priority to her. She's been so through so many difficult things in her childhood and also just in her adult life. She's been through so many trials that she has a really strong empathy and, and people feel that, you know, and, and I mean, you've read, you've read about it too. All sorts of famous CEOs have said that empathy is usually the first characteristic they look for when they're hiring leadership, but people are really smart and they can see through and, you know, even I've built an organization too, where we're like loyalty to the, the team is kind of above all else at most agencies and most companies, the client is above all else. Um, and that's just not true with us. The client's always number two. So I'd rather lose a client and keep um, someone who's a good, talented person. And I think a lot of other leaders, they'd rather keep the client than keep the, the you know, the employee. Yeah, but people little, see those little decisions. They see these little decisions and they start to realize that, okay, this person cares more about me as a person and more about this team than they do anything else. Right. And so it, it's interesting because when you make those decisions as a leader, you, you lose out on short-term gains. It does require short-term sacrifice, but you know, our retention rate is about 96%. We don't pay we're not the highest paying. And so, you know, there are other things that we do that, that really like, cause it, cause at some point anybody can get offered any amount of money, you know, and we even have a competitor. I've made a couple offers to their people and they, they won't leave for more money. And it's because that company has a great culture. That's awesome. So that's, that's my, you know, thing with leadership. Travis, if you were going to recommend two books, one maybe around business and one maybe around personal, uh, you know, maybe your favorite fiction book or something like that. What would those two books be? Yeah, $100 Startup was the probably the book, the one book that actually really changed my life. You know, um, I mean, that book was the catalyst for eight, eight figures of, you know, revenue over the years. And then personally, I probably would say, man, search for meaning. Um, you know, it's about a guy who's in the, uh, the uh, concentration camps during World War II. And he basically talks about the difference between people that survived and people that died. And it was really fascinating to me that that humor was one of the main components that kept people alive. And I've tried to keep that that principle. Um, and then if I can add one, another one, um, there's a book by Matt Graham, who is a, um, he's a survivalist. He's, he's been on a bunch of survival shows and I went and I did a 50 mile run in the desert with no supplies for five days with him. And that, that really changed my life too. We just hunted and foraged, but he has a book called Epic Survival. And, uh, anyways, the survival kind of stuff has been really interesting to me. 
That is wild. Let's talk for a minute about that 50 miles. So 50 miles in five days with no supplies. Is that what you said? Yeah. And it may have been further. I'm not really sure, but we ran about 10 to 15 miles a day for five days. And, um, all we took with us was, um, was a water filter pretty much it was all we, all we took. Um, we had a couple other small items. We took, um, we took a rock salt rock cause we ran and it was in the summer. It was really hot in, uh, Escalante in Utah, beautiful yeah. area. And, um, cause you have to have salt or you'll die, <laughs> but we just foraged. So like we fit, we caught fish with our hands. Um, we made fire with sticks. We, um, we, we found watercress. We made, um, we made flour out of acorns. Actually, you like take the acorns and you grind them up and then you put them in a bandana or like a, a, some clothing and then you, you rinse the tannins out. And we made flour out of that. There was also some old, like old, old heirloom corn, like pre, pre-European corn that the natives used to eat. And we, we mixed that in and then you put ash in it too. And the ash makes it so that you can, de- um, you can get, um, I can't remember if it was, is it biotin or what is it? There's some, there's some nutrients in the, the flower that ash helps your body extract. Anyways, it was really fascinating. We had like four or 500 calories a day is all. Um, but you know, the, the body adjusted and, you know, we, we made leaves we use leaves like insulate ourselves and it was actually not a supper fest at all. It was actually, it was actually like one of the funnest times of my life and it just changed. It made me realize how frenzied our minds are, you know? Um, and there's a lot of cliche takeaways from it, but, uh, it was, it was really a changed. I was, I changed a lot like permanently from that experience. I'd highly recommend it to anybody, even if you're not like running, if you're just, doing the survival part of it. It's yeah, a really good experience. That. That's so interesting, man. I, uh, okay. Travis, if you could put anything, and I get this from Tim Ferriss, so I got to give him credit. If you could put anything on a big blank billboard above the busiest intersection that you can think of, what would that billboard say? I'd say come what may and love it. Where does that come from? Uh, it actually comes from a, um, like a prominent Mormon religious leader and he just gave a talk about it. But if I look at like the one thing that I'd probably like want to is, is I just think that people don't really appreciate things, you know, and people always look at like pain and setbacks as, um, as just some like unfortunate thing, you know, but this attitude of just kind of, I don't know, having this appreciation for pain and for challenges and then finding joy in that. It kind of goes back to that man's search for meaning, like finding the humor and finding the enjoyable moments, you know, in the unenjoyable, I think is, that's probably what like sets happy people apart, probably from unhappy people. It's huge. Come what may and love it. Uh, Travis Chambers with Chamber Media, man. Thanks again for being on the show. Do you want to close out with any uh, any follow-up or how can people find out more about you? Anything for the audience today? Yeah, I'm really active on LinkedIn. So 
if anyone's interested in connecting there, um, you just look up my name and then um, Instagram, I'm pretty active too. That's just Travis underscore Chambers. And then other than that, we have a free Facebook group to just try and provide as much value and information we can. It's called Facebook Ad Creatives. And we'll, every day we post some of the top Shopify store ads and how much revenue they generated. And um, But uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Great. I'll link that in the show notes for the audience. Again, Travis, thanks for being on the show. And uh, until next time, man, come what may and love it, right? That's right. Zero. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before you go, I have a couple asks of you. Number one, if you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, I highly recommend you checking out the Sunday Six. Uh, the Sunday Six is a newsletter that I send out every Sunday with six interesting things that t- should take you about six minutes or less to check it out, unless you decide to go on one of the rabbit holes of the links that I include in the email. It's definitely worth checking out. And of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe. You can check out the Sunday Six by uh, looking in the show notes. There's a link there or going to jaredgrabiel.com and subscribing. Additionally, of course, January 17th, I published my first book, The Self-Help Book. And if you enjoy the content in the Business and Leadership Podcast, you'll most likely enjoy the book. You can read it in under two hours. It's very applicable, extremely practical. You can pick up one chapter and apply it to your life, or you can read the whole thing. Um, The Self-Help Book can be found at amazon.com or anywhere online that books are sold. And last but not least, the self-help journal. Of course, if you enjoy the book, you'll love the journal. It's a practical way to apply some of the steps to your life. Um, Self-awareness is a huge tool in business and leadership and journaling. Whether you use mine or anybody else's is going to be the best step you can take towards gaining self-awareness. So I recommend checking that out. Just search the self-help journal, Jared Grabiel on amazon.com. It's currently for sale for $9.99. And again, if you enjoy the show, please do two things. Refer it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks again. Much love and God bless.